Welcome, everybody. We're back at uh, Dorothy's Place, a podcast of Solidarity Hall. And today I have a guest co-host, as well as a guest. And my guest co-host is my pal, Joe Waters. Joe is the co-founder and CEO of Capita. Joe, it's great to have you uh, co-piloting here. How are you doing? Thanks, Elias. I'm, I'm doing well. Good to see you. And Capita, what is that? Yeah, so Capita is a think tank. Our purpose is to build a future in which all young children and their families flourish. And so we do the thing, I like to tell people, we do the things that think tanks do. We publish papers, we host convenings, we bring together people from across the political spectrum who are working in creative ways to solve the challenges that our children and their families face. Very good. And you were the guy that came to me and said, look at this great book I just discovered. And then I remembered there was something familiar about the subject of the book. And that was on the website of Capita. What was that? Yeah, so, I mean, in our email signature, we have a, we have a quote um, by Sergeant Schreiber um, from a speech that he gave at Notre Dame. Uh, no, sorry, at Berkeley in 1968. Um, calling us to be architects of humanity. Uh, and so Sergeant Shriver is somebody who has been inspiring to me for a long time. I can't quite put my finger on exactly when it was that I uh, first encountered him. Of course, he had, he had left um, formal public political life um, before I was sort of politically aware as a young adult. Uh, but he, he was somebody that I uh, encountered along the way, as I said, don't remember exactly where, but I've, I've been deeply interested in uh, Catholics in public life, uh, the responsibilities that Catholics have in public life, how that has played out in diverse ways in the American context. And Elias, is, as you and I have talked a lot about, very interested in the recovery of something that you and I call social Catholicism where um, Catholic political figures, uh, Catholics in public life have really brought uh, the principles, the core principles of the Catholic faith, Catholic commitments to peace, justice, human fraternity, and so forth to bear in, in public discourse. And Sergeant Shriver is, to my mind, the person who really did that the best. Uh, in the American context or has done it the best in the American context. I'm hopeful that there will be others in the future that future hosts of this podcast will be able to point yeah. to. Yes, you texted me uh, a new book. The book is called Spiritualizing Politics Without Politicizing Religion, the example of Sergeant Shriver. And the authors are James R. Price and Kenneth R. Melchon. And Jamie Price is with us. Jamie, with hello. Elias. Hello, Joe, Elias. Great to be with you. Wonderful. Thanks for being here, Jamie. I would love to hear, Jamie, I mean, very excited about the book, as, as Elias uh, mentioned. It was something I just, I came across in one of the Sergeant Shriver Institute emails and was very excited to see it. I've read the biography, the Scott Stossel biography of, of Sergeant Shriver, um, have read Mark Shriver's book. Uh, but this this book is, is different uh, in that it offers an example uh, for 
political engagement, practical idealism uh, in our contemporary and future political context. So I'd be curious if we could just start at the beginning. How did you encounter Sergeant Shriver and what led to uh, your interest uh, such that you wrote this book? I encountered Sergeant Shriver when I was a professor in the School of Religion and Religious Education at the Catholic University of America in DC. I was teaching a course on um, mystical texts, and one of my students was Tim Shriver, who runs Special Olympics right, right now, and he's the middle of five children that Sarge had with his wife, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. And uh, Tim and I hit it off in the context of that course, reading The Cloud of Unknowing and Teresa of Avila and you know, classics of Western spirituality like that. And he introduced me to he introduced me to Sarge, I think, uh, invited me back home to dinner. And so I got, to, that was when I first met him. But the the real engagement came when um, Tim asked me to help them think through what turned out to be a 70th birthday present for Sarge, which was the uh, program that they started called the Shriver Peace Worker Program. It was a program for returned Peace Corps volunteers, a graduate program that they originally started at Georgetown University and weren't happy with the scope of it and wanted to expand it and stuff like that, which is what Sarge always wanted to do. He wanted to do bigger and better and more transcendent things all the time. And so it was moved to University of Maryland, Baltimore County. The Shriver Center there was, was just established and they asked me to run that program, which I was delighted to do. And that's kind of how I got to know him. He was on the board and we began to talk about ideas of religion, social change, his approach to that, and particularly how his spiritual leanings fit into those things. Jimmy, I wonder if we could take a second for the younger members of the audience and just give a quick thumbnail of who was Sergeant Shriver and why is he kind of a kind of an epic figure from the 1960s? Mostly. Well, he was born in uh, 1915. And so he was part of the, I guess he was part of the greatest generation, you can just you mm -hmm. know, categorize it that way. And he was, uh, he went to Yale University, both as an undergraduate and uh, became, and, uh, and to the law school there, fought as a, uh, fought in the Navy during World War II. He was a, an artillery gunner on, in Guadalcanal and then came back and moved to uh, moved to Chicago to help Senator Joseph P. Kennedy fi figure out what to do with uh, this major purchase that he'd made, which happened to be the merchandise mart. So mm -hmm. Sarge, was, Sarge was in charge of making that profitable and making that work, getting clients to come to come in, and he did that extremely successfully. So, and he was uh, so he was a major economic figure, a business leader in in Chicago. And also involved in the in Catholic circles. There, he he became uh, he became the ultimately the chair. I think in fifty three it was he became part of the Catholic Interracial Council in Chicago. He was appalled that it was as small as it, as it was, and he wanted to build build bigger. He became a major figure nationally in that movement, and he was also on the school board there. So he was he had a um, he had a career that was both public and and private. He was headed, you know, he was mentioned for candidate for governor and senator and things like that. But then his uh, father-in-law asked him to 
help out with uh, his brother-in-law, Jack Kennedy's campaign in 1960 for, for president. So he dropped a couple of those things and ran the civil rights division. And of course, President Kennedy won that race and tapped him to run the Peace Corps to figure out what the Peace Corps would be. And that's when he moved to Washington and became part of part of politics where he ran the Peace Corps. I'm just giving you the, the overarching yes. sketch yes. since Great. I thought that's what Great. you're asking for. And he ran the Peace Corps. And then after in 64, when President Johnson finished out the rest of President Kennedy's term, uh, he began, he was head of the war on poverty and then he was ambassador to France when they were the first round of peace negotiations was, take, was taking place. He went on to work in, um, of course, he was the, the Democratic, he served as the Democratic representative or, or vice president in 1972 and lost that election to, to President Nixon. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, then went on to do interreligious dialogue in the Middle East and nuclear arms control, and then finally working as a kind of citizen diplomat as a lawyer and then he went to work with his with his wife who had started special olympics and he helped internationalize it particularly moving it to china and some of the places that he connected it through being an ambassador and through being a peace corps volunteer i mean not volunteer but director of peace corps mm -hmm. so he was a he was a major public figure he was on the cover of time a couple of times he was bandied about for he ran for president he was bandied about for vice president he was a very who's a major figure in the public eye. He's drifted away over the last half a century, but that's what happens. So Jamie, I am you, you describe the book uh in in such a way that you present Schreiber as an example of a set of ideas that are relevant today. What are those ideas? Well, the main idea, and it has to do with um, the the mess we're in with regard to religion and politics, right? As as you know, and as everybody knows, we're pretty polarized over the relationship of religion and religion and politics. And our contention in the book, my contention with my co-writer Ken Melchin, is that Sarge had a way of thinking about the relationship of religion and politics, which would be useful right now in opening some up some of that some of the deadlock and that he had an access to thoughts that are very difficult for us to even imagine these days. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. And in particular, it had to do with, this is the first part of the, uh, the title spiritualizing politics. It had, had, has to do with his understanding of the role of the spirit in life and in, and in politics and in public policy. You know, I wonder if it's worth noting that there is an interesting kind of parallel track going on in the background here with uh, with uh, Schreiber's career, but also Vatican II and the kind of church opening. And in the case of Chicago, as I remember living in Chicago, I was there back in the 80s, but it was in the aftermath of a lot of Chicago Catholic activism. It was just a hotbed, and, and I'm sure Schreiber contributed a lot to heating it up, but I ran into some uh, an older crowd there that were, had been very involved not only in kind of the national 
Center for the Laity, but they've been involved with civil rights. They've been involved with creating a Chicago Defender newspaper, uh, which was very much in the thick of those battles back when uh, Old Man Daly was the mayor. And King said it was the roughest place he'd ever been to when, when he uh, visited, uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. visited Chicago and lived there for a while. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of Sarge, in some ways, being in that kind of climate uh, around a different kind of Catholicism. He was he was very he was a very interesting Catholic. On the one hand, he was extraordinarily devout and conservative in that sense. He said the rosary every day. He went to mass every day. He would walk to the merchandise mart. This um, before he went to obviously before he went to D.C. and he would stop at the cathedral and uh, for for mass and. He would, um, so he was the perfect example of a devout Catholic and very doctrinaire in that in that regard. But at the same time, he was a universalist. He was open to the, he had a very interesting notion, he had sort of a personalist notion, I think, from, from Maritain, from his reading of Maritain, and grounded in Aquinas and Teilhard at the, at the time. And so he was both international and globalist and had, had a strong doctrine of the Holy Spirit and yet um, was conservative as well. It's not those two those two strands or threads within Catholicism were in tension in, in Vatican II. And Sarge, one of the interesting things and one of the things that we point out in the book is that he lived and transcended that tension in his not in his own life personally, but also in the way he thought and ultimately in the kinds of programs he developed and built the Peace Corps and some of the war on poverty programs specifically. But you're right, he was part of that um, activist, as you say, rough and tumble Chicago Catholicism. He was he was the leading spirit in, in, uh, in desegregating the Catholic, Catholic high schools. They were totally segregated when he came into the Catholic Interracial Council, and by the time he left, the the momentum had changed, and they were all moving toward integration. And he spent a lot of energy. He spent a lot of energy on that, and got to know the, the progressive forces, and also talked talked the Archbishop into doing a lot of things. So, could you just share a little bit more about? what his formative influences were. I mean, you said that he was a very traditional, pious, daily mass going, rosary saying, Catholic. Um, what were his formative influences, maybe both religiously and politically, such that you have what today seems to us to be a very strange blend of conservative Catholicism and political liberalism? Well, he, he grew up in Maryland. He grew up in Baltimore, so he was an altar boy and um, part of the Catholicism that was around Baltimore at the time. But his family, his mother in particular, was was uh, was progressive, and his family was involved in the starting of Commonweal magazine, which is part of the, as you know, part of the progressive movement and continues to be these, these days. So, um, and so there there was there was that. And he was part of the, um, and when he went to Yale, 
he became part of the the Thomas Aquinas Foundation um, organization there, and he read all of Aquinas's works, and he and played those off against what was going on in society at the time, and particularly the rising problem of Nazism and fascism in Europe, and and uh, and then of course the rise of world uh, the rise of World War Two and those those dynamics. So he was. I mean, the world was. We think it's we think it's pretty crazy and dangerous now. It certainly was at the time he was coming up, and his his belief and his his devotion were part of how were part of the way he went at thinking of those things through. I guess I would say. And I'm not sure where it came from. Maybe, I mean, when he was in, uh, I think it was in high school, he participated in the, in the, in an international exchange program, the experiment in international living. And he was, he was based in Europe at a time when fascism was rising and when Nazism was rising. And he got, and he came to realize that the German people were, I mean, it sort of broke through all of his notion of stereotypes at the, you know, at the time. And he, and he never, he was never confused by stereotypes thereafter. And he had a, and became very clear that social structures carry persons to think and do certain things. And that the, the key for, the key for change was always in the mind and heart of the individual. So he, he was never, never reified social structures. He always wondered what was going on in the, as I said, the mind and heart of the person and how did the spirit work there and how could you set things up structurally so that people were opened up to curiosity and to um, love and to compassion. And that's how he, um, that's how he tackled, that's how he tackled desegregation in the schools and that's what he, that's rebuilt into the Peace Corps as well. So let's, if we could just start talking about the Peace Corps, because in the book, you say your focus is on the Peace Corps as, quote, a mature expression of a set of ideas on religion and politics. What were those ideas? And, and unbelievable, I mean, Peace Corps is a U.S. government program, right? So to I think a lot of folks would be very surprised to hear that there was some sort of spiritual root uh, to a program like the Peace Corps. Well, and Sarge went so far as to say that the Peace Corps was an example of how spiritual values could be um, implemented in government programs. And that's a, that would be a, you'd think that would be a violation of court, Supreme Court rulings on, on church and state. But it's interesting that those rulings, the ones that have shaped the culture wars and the ones that shaped the way we think about it today were coming down right at about the time he was creating the, um, Peace Corps, right about the same time the Vatican II was happening. And um, he just had a, a more differentiated view of life and institutions and the human person than, the, unfortunately, Hugo Black did at the time when he was ruling on, uh, ruling on uh, the relationship of religion and politics and trying to interpret what the founders were saying in the religion clauses of the First Amendment. But those ideas were that you have, I mean, he was very clear that laws 
and uh, you know public public policies are are good. They're important. They're they set the values for how people are supposed to be relating to each other, how we cooperate with, with each other as citizens, and they set norms for those things. But they don't really change how people think and feel, and the kinds of decisions they make. They can't. They can't coerce. You can't coerce. You can't make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh with a by passing a law. Only the spirit can do that. And he, and he thought that the church ought to be doing that. And he was very disappointed that the church wasn't doing that. He would complain that he, he didn't hear it. He would go to church fifty. You know, well, he said fifty-two times a year, but he went really three hundred sixty-five times a year. Maybe it was only when he was looking for homilies. But he said the church was never talking about segregation. It was never talking about political issues. It was never encouraging people to um, take a stand. And he didn't understand why that was the case. He thought that was he thought that was awful. And he he thought that not that not that the government could or should necessarily do it, but that there were institutions who were that whose job it was to make sure that people were loving and compassionate. And he didn't think the church was doing a good enough. Thought the church had all the potential in the world, but it wasn't doing a good enough job. So I think ultimately, when he had the chance to start the Peace Corps, he decided he'd do it himself. And the way he the way he did that um, was by making sure that people. Well, there were what he said five rules that were simple simple rules. One, and these these reflect the Peace Corps. But you first you. Um, you learn the language of the person you're, you're going to be speaking with. You you make a, a commitment to anchor yourself in their customs. You take yourself. You put you to agree to live at at, at the level the economic standard and the life that the people of the host country live. You um, commit you you commit yourself to the idea that the work of building nations is worthwhile, and you also open yourself to suffering. And those rules, he said, would lead you to the place where you would make friends, build peace. And and even though you were set up not knowing exactly what you were doing when you went in, you would be connecting with people. You would be allowing yourself to have the projection of suspicion on you and taking that and absorbing that and opening yourself to the kind of self-transcendence that only the Holy Spirit makes possible. And so for him, it was a, that was an intrinsically spiritual thing to do. And he opened that um, possibility up to the people of the United States. And they responded in droves, not just Catholics, but everybody. And he didn't care if you were Catholic or not. He was more of a foundational theologian in that regard, rather than a doctrinal one. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, I was struck thinking, Jamie, about this period when trust in government was, I think the numbers I've seen are like 70% <laughs> of the people coming out of the Second World War still. Uh, it was very, very high. And also I was struck by um, statements that he made at the time that, that suggested he was looking or hoping for a transformation that would happen at the individual level with these volunteers in terms of their encounters with people abroad, but he also said, you know, he didn't want them arriving, as he put it, as salesmen of any kind. Right. And the thing I wanted to ask about, because it, 
in our little blog, Solidary Hall, we sometimes engage with the ideas of Ivan Illich. And Illich was a great critic of development in general. And at one point in 68, and I don't know if Schreiber was ever aware of this, probably not, but Illich gave a talk to some students who were going into the Peace Corps and other such efforts. And he told them, you know, you're, you're exporting a way of life and you're unwittingly, you know, taking advantage of privilege and you're assuming you're not going to really be learning anything from these people. You're bringing them something and all of that is wrong. You need to rethink all of that. And what I'm wondering is, you know, to what degree was Schreiber sensitive to this critique? And 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 as he got older and, and the way development played out, did he ever address that? Did he ever have any second thoughts on the way things happened with the Peace Corps? What, what What's the record on that? Well, he was very sensitive to those issues and sensitive to them before Illich made his made his comments from the mm -hmm. from the very from the very design. I mean, he fought; he had to fight, and it cost him something in his relationship with President Kennedy. But he had to fight for the independence of the Peace Corps. It was very clear that, I mean, um, when the Peace Corps was being created, foreign aid was being rethought too. The um, USAID was being structured at this at the same time. And there was a big battle to play to make Peace Corps part of USAID and to have it and part of the part of the US foreign policy. It makes makes sense. And Shriver said, if you do that, any value that it could possibly have would be lost because you have to be trusted. And the only way you can be trusted is if you come in and listen to what people have to say, ask them what they need on their terms, and provide it. Um, that's the only way you can break down the break down those barriers. So Illich was wrong that um, Peace Corps volunteers did not come selling a way of life. I mean, in, obviously, you're an American. Obviously, English is your primary language. Obviously, you've you know imbibed the, the American system. But it isn't as though Peace Corps volunteers were going over there to plant that seed or to or to convert anybody to the U.S. system. It was really open-handedly help with what needed needed to be done and it was and at the time the main issue and the reason he, the way he found this out was by going around and asking country leaders what help, kind of help they needed so even at that level even at Shriver's level he the Peace Corps never went to a, a country that it wasn't invited to and they never did anything that weren't that wasn't requested and, and Peace Corps volunteers were always paired with host country nationals to give them a to give them a credibility and to give them a role. And they brought what skills they had to really at the time, since this was in the post-colonial world and France and Britain and Belgium were withdrawing from Asia and were withdrawing from Africa, Africa at the time. And there was a there was a there was a huge, as it were, manpower gap and skill gap in places. And so the thought the thought was that Americans could come and where where requested or where needed, they could help provide some transition transitions expertise until that could be provided by local people. And so that's that's what Peace Corps volunteers did in many in many fields. But it was always um, it was always with an eye toward towards Sarge, I mean, well, let me put it this way. Sarge was very aware that things happen when people make, when people decide to make them happen. And the only way you would 
build peace. So the only way you make friends is if somebody decides that they trust you, decides that they they want to want to be with you. And the only way you can do that in this case, where you have the most powerful nation in the world, and you have a uh, you know one of the representatives of the, the Cold War, the, the global tectonics between the U.S. and SS, and the USSR. And people are aware of that, and people are suspicious. It wasn't just Illich who was suspicious. The people on the ground were suspicious too. Was, but to a virtually to a placement and to a Peace Corps volunteer, they broke through that by just being open, by just being curious about what, how they could help, and by not trying to impose anything, not getting involved in elections, not getting involved in politics, not getting involved in in, uh, in anything except service. And that was a very, very difficult thing to do because you didn't know who you were. You didn't know what you were supposed to be doing. You didn't know how to break through. But Peace Corps gave Peace Corps volunteers a, a credible role and a credible place and a credible mission. And they did, did amazing work. And, and, he, and for Shriver, he didn't care that he didn't know exactly what or how a Peace Corps volunteer would make friends and build peace. He just knew that they needed to do that. And that's what the Holy Spirit wanted the world to do. And if you set yourself up in this way of public policy, and this gets around to your point, Joe, from your question from earlier, if you, if you can set people up to be in roles and in patterns of cooperation and in, in which they are systematically and sustainably transcending their own needs, transcending their own biases, transcending their own approaches, they will open themselves to the spirit and succeed in that. Even how many of the breakdowns there are, they will move forward. And that's so, I mean, he would say things like, well, I've been to 40 Peace Corps, 40 Peace Corps um, nations, nations with Peace Corps volunteers. And I've seen people with mixed relief, mixed belief, mixed race, mixed, uh, and they're spiritual, they're engaging in spiritual acts and deeds, breaking down barriers of religion and creed. I mean, those are the kinds of things he said in his in his sermons. He was very upfront about the spiritual dimension of this, very upfront about the politically transformative part of this. And it was fascinating to me. So I, and, uh, very curious to me. So it took a while to figure out what in the world he was doing when he was when he was doing that. So I appreciate your asking me about it, but that's what we try to explore in the book. This may be an interesting place or the appropriate place, I guess I should say, to bring in um, Bernard Lonegren, um, who features in, in the book, The Model of Interiority, uh, as you describe it. Could you who who is this, and 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 what what is the role that Lonergan plays uh, in your analysis of Shriver Shriver's work and life? Didn't you study Lonergan at Duke? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> no, Lonergan is a is a Jesuit philosopher and theologian and methodologist and economist. He he was a he was a contemporary of I mean in terms of age in terms of. Uh, of Sergeant Shriver's. I think he was born in 1904 and died in 1984. Um, but he was, as I said, he was he was a Jesuit. And his task, his what he saw as as needed was a renovation of Catholic thinking. He thought that the um, the scientific 
the, the scientific revolution that was launched by Galileo and, and Newton 400 years ago had revolutionized in a permanent and positive way how human beings were thought about what knowing was and that, that knowing was empirical, that knowing was a matter of uh, making verifiable judgments and that that was a massive challenge to to theology, which was based on uh, Aristotelian science of logical deduction. And the church was more powerful and it fought that, you know, it, it um, condemned and executed scientists and Franciscans who were Bruno and, and others who were making, put Galileo under permanent house arrest for, us, for studying the phases of the moon and claiming that, uh, claiming that things happened in this, in the stars that, contradicted what was going on in scripture so there was all of that stuff going all of that stuff going on but um and Lonergan was a was a guy who thought it was a mistake for the for the Vatican to declare modernism as the as the, as a heresy he, he uh, so he was a he was progressive in that sense but very but also one of those conservative Catholics in terms of in terms of doctrine in terms of theological truth and he just felt that the we needed to find an empirical way to talk about religious truths rather than a deductive way and not a non-Aristotelian way. And the way you do that is by pointing to the way the spirit actually works in the human mind. And Sarge was Sarge um, knew Lonergan, read Lonergan, uh, didn't doesn't refer to him much in his. Uh, I talked to him about Lonergan a couple of times, but he didn't. He didn't really absorb him the way he did Maritain, and the way he did some of the other, uh, some of the other Thomas and and uh, also Teilhard, but got to the same point, which was that it isn't it isn't in the ex external logical truths, external you know, intellectually externalized logic, logical truths that you find God in the world and find spirit in the world, or you critically grounded. It's in the way human hearts are moved, the way minds are moved. And Lonergan wrote a book called Method and Theology, which kind of category, which we talk about in um, in the book, and which explains that methodological move, that shift. And so basically the claim we make is that the shift from logic to interiority, from from that kind of categorical thinking to and an, an empirically based thinking, which is not based on the sensory experience. It's not even based on conscious experience. It's based on spiritual experience and how that and the, the functional relationship of the spirit and the, and the mind. And Sarge was so deeply spiritual that he knew these things. And he built programs based on, you know, how do you open yourself to the spirit? How do you become more compassionate? How can you increase the probabilities of people becoming loving and wanting to commit to it? making friends and building peace. And we just argue in the book to, your, to get to your point that Lonergan's method, Lonergan's method of interiority explains what Shriver was doing. And we find it interesting that both of them were coming to this breakthrough, which is representative of in Vatican II. Um, and Lonergan did it in the realm of theology and Shriver was doing it in the realm of political practice, but that they're coherent, they're conversant with each other. And you can use Lonergan's method to explain what why Shriver's example is as powerful as it is. 
And you need to do that because otherwise you're just waiting around for another driver. Whereas we need, we need ways of building and working together, which don't count on a great man theory of history. So could, could you maybe just speak to that uh, or, 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 you know, speak to um, how Shriver's ideas, but also the example of Shriver's life um, can help us navigate some of the polarization? You think how they can help us navigate some of the polarization of contemporary American life without relying on just, as you say, uh, an, the production of another Sergeant Shriver well, it's difficult because we're really deep into this mess and it's very hard to think our way out of it. You almost have to figure out, uh, in the frameworks we have, the models we have for thinking about the relationship of religion and politics are stunted and we have to go back beyond those. And the, the thing that I think Trevor is useful for is that he gives us a way of doing that. Um, the, I mean, I, I would take it back to Hugo Black, who quoted Jefferson, where he said, I mean, he was just, as, as I'm sure you know, and as, as many people do, the, the legal foundation of the culture war fights between religion and politics begin in 1960 with Everson versus the Board of Education, where, or maybe it was Ewing. Yeah, I guess that would have, that's what it was. Township in, in New Jersey wanted to um, reimburse parents for sending their, their kids to school on public buses. And they included Catholic um, high schools and, and schools as that. And there was, a, there was somebody who complained about that and thought that, that, was the, that was a violation of the First Amendment, that it was establishment of religion if you paid, you paid parents to send their kids to Catholic schools. And Hugo Black said, no, that that was a, a legitimate use of taxpayer money because it was about the safety of children getting to school and all of that. But that the reason that it didn't violate it was that taking kids to school didn't have anything to do, didn't have anything to do with religious belief. If there had been any, if there, but there was in fact, there's this, there's a wall of separation between church and state, and that was not violated in that case. But if if it were ever violated, it would not be um, constitutional. It would be a violation. And so the 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 wall of separation the between church and state is what has been the framework that has patterned our thinking ever ever since, and and it's been challenged by challenged by um, lots of people who think that it's ridiculous to think that you could ever separate our religious beliefs from our political and social ones and wondering about how to do that. But the fight, the, the battle lines have organized around that. And Shriver never thought that was the battle line at all. The issue was, um, the issue was not one of separating, separating church and state because that was the, or differentiating them. That was the, that was the battle that Jefferson was fighting back in the early 18th or late 18th century. When the, when the when Madison and Jefferson and were were writing those those doctrines, the issue was how do you make sure that that the issue there was how do you make sure that government does not become the enforcement arm of the church church doctrine, and so and how do you make sure that you can have 
a society in which you don't have to be a particular religion, belong to a particular religion to um, to, to govern or to be in the military or to do anything like that. So they basically differentiated those functions and the differentiation was put in the First Amendment and the fact that you don't have to take religious oaths to serve an office and things like that. But then over the course of a hundred years and more, um, the issue became not how do you differentiate them, but how do you relate them? Because churches began to run schools and the government began to do all different sorts of sorts of things that it wasn't doing when the constitution was was related, was was put together and those the Bill of Rights was was put together. And the 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 issue became not just like, well, I mean, sorry to take a half another half step back. What Jefferson really argued was that you have to differentiate religion and politics because it's a matter of conscience. Your relationship with your God is a matter of is a matter of conscience. And you can't government can't force conscience. And I think what we have, what we what we started, what we've started to see, or what over the last sixty years, is not the issue of conscience, because I think everybody agrees with that, but it's the issue of of your um, spiritual awareness. You know, the, inadvertently, Hugo Black and the subsequent justices identified collapsed um, our involvement with our religious traditions with the religious tradition itself. And you know as well as I do that it isn't the particular doctrine or isn't the particular celebration. And here it is Christmas season. You can see the difference between those people who are in, in between the, the trappings of the, of the season and the symbols of the season and those people who are actually engaged in the, the spiritual mediation of that through those symbols. And it was those things that Black missed and that the Supreme Court is, has missed, but Sarge never missed them. And he was aware that the, that that, engage, that spiritual engagement could happen whether you had specifically religious symbols or not. You could just say, let's build friends and uh, let's make friends and build peace throughout the world. And people said there would be a sense of call, a sense of spiritual calling that would enable people, that would have people say, yeah, I want to do that and sign up. And say you're going to have to learn another language you're going to have to take you're going to have to change your life you're going to have to make yourself available to foreign host country nationals yeah i want to do that well what's the i want to do that where does that come from you, you could argue that it comes from those individuals but for shriver it was those individuals as called or as tugged or as pulled by the by the spirit and it was by setting up those kinds of frameworks that draw out the best and the most transcendent in us that we um, can integrate religion and politics without it being becoming a doctrinaire or institutional issue, and I think those are the ways that those are the ways that Shriver provides ideas or ways of thinking about it. Of course, now you have to you have to know yourself. How does the spirit work? How are we called to transcendence? How are so places like Duke Divinity School that you went to, Joe? You know, and, and the University of Chicago Divinity School, where I went, need to um, help educate, and the church needs to help educate people in their relationship to the spirit and its relationship to politics. We just have, I don't know, quite doctrinaire and, and knee-jerk approaches to the to it right now, and it's not nuanced. Yeah, 
in the way that it needs to be to fight our way through this. Yeah, that, that that's an excellent setup, I think, Jamie, for my final question, which is, um, what does the church need to do or be doing to produce men uh, and women of, of Sarge's uh, stature uh, spiritually, uh, awareness of, uh, as you say, transcendence and the way that the spirit works? Um, and, you know, one thing that, that I note is that there do not seem to be uh, Catholic politicians on the scene of a generation younger than the Bidens and Pelosi's uh, and 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 some others who maybe exhibit um, the nuance uh, and 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 sort of capacity for understanding that a person like Sergeant Shriver um, exhibited in my estimation. Um, so I'd, I'd just be curious to know. You know, was it was it in your view, was it a distinctive cultural Catholic cultural milieu that he grew up in? Was there something specific about his uh, formation uh, that we can we can learn for, from today for how the church uh, forms lay Catholics for life in the public square? He was so focused on. the dignity of people. He was so focused on, um, you know, I suppose in this particular season, talking about the, the, and this is the way he would do it too, talking about I pause now because I'm a little hesitant to get theological, but I but Sarge would have, so I so I speak for I speak for him that the notion of of the divine becoming human, the notion of the divine entering into history, the notion of the the spirit being being present in all of us, calling us forth to be who we're called who we who we should become. I don't exactly know how he was formed in that. I think it seems to have been uh, seems to have been an orientation of his from the, from the beginning. I um, he would probably say it was formed at mass, because um, even in even in this is his son Tim told me this, but that's some of the last words that he remembered is you know he he had Alzheimer's at the end of his life, and so his uh, his memory left, but his memory of the mass didn't. He would be able to say the he would be able to say the words of the mass right toward the end of his right toward the end of his life before his health totally failed so there's a there's a way that the the power of those those rituals for him but they did it but they weren't just empty they weren't rote they weren't routine there um as Lonega would say the fires were burning for him and i don't know how you do that except by setting yourself up for the spirit to do it i don't know that there's any other way and yeah, I mean, it seems that way to me, and I think, I mean, maybe the maybe the only lesson, right, is that he he was formed in a very rich liturgical life from the very beginning of his life. Um, I think I, there's a famous image, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, of him as an altar boy to Cardinal Gibbons, um, 
uh, I mean, which which would have been late in Cardinal Gibbons' life and very early in Sergeant Shriver's life. Um, and and you know, it wasn't just that he was formed in a distinctively Catholic cultural milieu of Baltimore uh, in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, but that he he his family he was that that a feature of that milieu was uh, a very rich uh, liturgical life uh, that was formative from the very beginning. I think you're right. I think that's right. He uh, and he's he's. Uh, I have the you know I have the sense that he that he set up rituals and patterns of patterns of living no matter in everything that he did. And I. And it was it was there was an intrinsic worshipfulness to the way he went about life, and I don't know how you you can't mass produce that, and it goes person by person, but certainly you can um, awaken people to look for it, to seek it, to find it in themselves because it's there. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, very good. The book, again, is Spiritualizing Politics Without Politicizing Religion, The Example of Sergeant Shriver. Jamie, thank you for this uh, great conversation. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Joe, thanks for the questions. And Elias, for the opportunity. You bet. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.